I am spinning in a deer hair collar here. Whether you use a deer hair collar is dependent on the materials you have. And what I have left is a lot of soft stuff. It's not stiff enough to give the whole intruder big fly, translucent fly, stands out without using a ton of materials. Well, here we are. You and me. I've made a second episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires podcast, and you're listening to it right now. I didn't tell international outdoor superstar April Vokey that the majority of my listeners are blue jays and squirrels outside my garage that I can see through my car studio window, and she agreed to be my guest on today's show. Those blue jays and squirrels heard April was going to be on the podcast and told me that my own stardom is now inevitable, that I need to accept becoming the one true god of the arts and crafts podcasting subgenre. Not like God with a long white beard perched on a cloud in his heavenly kingdom. Not like the all-powerful Zeus high atop Mount Olympus. That would be ridiculous. More like a transcendent global knowledge source that gives everyone and everything the power to manifest their own reality and raise their vibration to a level so high that it's almost inconceivable to the modern human mind. Inconceivable! My loyal backyard listeners warned me that the road to feather crafting podcast success would be paved with the blood of crochet masters, hat makers, basket weavers, and more. That I might lose sight of my real goals once I'm disgustingly rich. I obviously paid my podcast dues with that first episode. I've proven that I'm ready. Soon, I'll be opening offshore accounts to hold all my ad money, and I can finally stop working on spec for you people. I started the episode with a brief clip from Skagit Master of Ed Ward talking through techniques he used to tie some of the first intruder flies. And that is the subject of the show today, intruders. April Vokey agreed to nerd out with me about intruders from the other side of the globe, and I'm going to share the chat we had in just a few minutes. It's situations like this that Al Gore dreamt up when he invented the internet. But before we talk about what should be one of your favorite fly patterns, I want to talk about crippling fear, the true opposite of love the ultimate control mechanism. As a young boy, my most feared intruders were things like Freddy Krueger, who rudely intruded into people's dreams to torture and murder them. Even scarier for some reason were the spindly aliens that intruded into Christopher Walken's bedroom in the movie Communion. I might not be exaggerating when I say I watched that movie for the first time around 1993 and still think about it daily. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm very strong and not afraid of anything, okay? I'm scared of you, sir, and I'm protecting myself. Here's a short list of other intruders that have kept me up at night. The wolf having sex with a woman in Bram Stoker's Dracula. The chest-bursting alien from Ridley Scott's Alien. Chucky from Child's Play. Kathy Bates in Misery. And the demon that made Linda Blair vomit in a priest's face in The Exorcist. I'm protecting myself. I'm scared of you. Growing up and moving from my parents' house in the woods to my own place in downtown Sacramento led me to fear more realistic intruders. Things like drunk drivers. Or crazy neighbors that allegedly broke into my yard to allegedly steal a Japanese maple tree and allegedly drag it down the street, leaving a cartoon dirt trail and then calling the cops on me for doing it on a holiday morning. My wife and I have two young kids that have turned out to be the most genius and expensive intruders to ever not let you use the bathroom by yourself. And those are just in this dimension. Intruders that might remote view onto my astral plane dead set on severing my silver cord are even more terrifying. Who or what is flying tic-tac-shaped craft off the coast of San Diego that can somehow maneuver through the air and water without incident and evade our most skilled military pilots? That sure feels like an extraordinary intruder until you really dig into the UFO subject and scramble your brain over and over about whether the UFO phenomenon is even aliens from another planet at all. And how this phenomenon has been documented by highly credible individuals shutting down nuclear weapons. Have you ever spent multiple nights reading about orbs of light entering people's bodies and healing their illnesses? Maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. As a fly tire, you should be staying up twisting up intruders. The intruder fly is an awesome pattern that wasn't conceived until around the time I was first terrified by communion in 1993. It was created in Alaska by a collective of anglers that have helped define a handful of modern fly tying and fishing techniques. Ed Ward, 
Jerry French and Scott Howe, they continue to innovate and pass down their wisdom like true sages of the art. Their original prototypes were tied on extremely long 3, 4, 5, and 6x long streamer hooks. The large flies elicited violent takes from Alaskan fish and sent the men on a mission to perfect their new pattern or template. Platform might be a better term for it. The intruder isn't really a specific pattern as much as it is a type of fly meant to elicit a specific response from a fish. An intruder fly is meant to trigger aggression when intruding into the territory of a sport fish, thus eliciting a violent strike response. The most productive intruder fly patterns trigger the fight response without scaring the fish away from its territory. They're meant to swim big, but still cast with ease. They're designed for variation and definitely helped further stoke my obsession to get creative with fly tying and feel more confident with my abilities. After some field trials, Ed, Scott, and Jerry quickly figured out that the hooks they were using were not the friendliest things in the world to biting fish. Fish were often caught bleeding badly with large puncture wounds. And the long hook shanks provided fish with lots of leverage to work the hook free. They started cutting the hook off at the end and tying on shanks instead. This led them to using Waddington shanks, pioneering their own steelhead shanks, and eventually land on a few different ways to add a hook to that new platform. Jerry French's Ultra Rig is what I believe to be the most recent rigging update. All of this ingenuity has led to a fly pattern that is highly customizable, a fly that you can swap hooks out on and reuse, it's efficient in hooking fish, and it's about as fish-friendly as a sharp thing that sticks in their mouth can get. Besides all that, they look really cool, all right? If you were able to tie one that matched the hatch of an In-N-Out burger, I would eat it right now. April Voki can tie up a really sweet intruder fly, and watching her tie the Sugar Pop intruder variation gave me the confidence to give it a shot myself a couple years ago. Now, variations on the intruder are a regular spin for me at the Vise, and April's on my own Mount Rushmore of tires. I'd be a fool to introduce her as if you weren't already familiar, so I'm just going to remind you of a few reasons why April is a total badass. She started her own guiding operation called Fly Gal Ventures in 2007. She was the first fly angler featured in Outside Magazine. She's been all over outdoor TV, including her own show Shorelines. She's written for Meat Eater. And of course, she hosts her own podcast called Anchored, which has blossomed into Anchored Outdoors, which has become basically a DIY Ivy League virtual university for all things outdoors. I'm proud to say that I'm a member and you should consider joining yourself. Okay, I've blabbed long enough. Let's get into it with April about intruders. April Voki, thank you for joining me today. Um, I want to start by saying thank you for three different things. For letting me steal some of your time. For motivating me to tie my, my first intruder. I told you about when I was emailing you. And uh, for helping me with my snap tee. I, I hadn't been using that cast very much. And uh, my, my usual beat on my local river got messed up uh, with a restoration project. And um, I ended up going to a new spot where I needed to use it. And I was kind of rusty, um, watched your video. And I went out, I was like at the beginning of, of my session, I was doing pretty good. And then like I started nitpicking myself and I fell apart completely. And I was casting like <laughs> shit for like an hour, for, like the last yeah. hour of my day. And, but I went back home and I, um, I watched it again. And like, after applying myself, and watching the video and then watching it again, it really pointed out a lot of things to me that I'm going to fix next time I go out. And um, the way you explain things, your tempo um, and like the metaphors that you use are super clear and helpful ways to help someone like me improve. And so I just oh. wanted to, I just want to tell you that. And, and thank you thank for putting you. that out there. I appreciate um, that. I love hearing the good feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wanted to start with that. Like how did, how did Anchored your, your podcast turn into this big kind of like online school of Anchored Outdoors? Like how did that develop? Like what happened? Well, I mean, before we were rolling, we were talking about trying to convey certain things with audio only. And that's really how it started was I, I kind of got frustrated trying to paint a picture and thought, you know what, I'm just going to branch out and expand the podcast, make Anchored Outdoors and have it so that there is actual visuals that we can include as well. And then factor in that I know myself, I learn best when I'm learning from somebody that I really know and admire and connect with. And so um, even though it's, I've, it just confuses people. So I've taken a lot of the messaging down, but I call it the connect approach. And the connect approach is just learning 
from someone that you've heard their story, you you know their struggles and you re- can relate to them. So you're like, oh, I know that he or she had, you know, was at the point of not even knowing what to do with their life. And here they are one of the leading forces in the industry. So it was all just kind of wanting to put all the pieces together. That's cool. Super cool. Yeah. I've been lucky to fish with a, a bunch of guides and that are, that are great teachers like that, you know, that I trust immediately and they're, they're able to teach me I'm pretty hands-on, you know? And so like being with them is one thing, but doing it virtually with you, you're still able to convey that. And so um, it's, it's a great resource. And, you know, I, I will tell you know, anybody about it that, that it's great and they should check it out, you know? Thanks. Um, yeah. Um, so when did you, when did you start tying flies in general? I just start with some general questions. Yeah. Look, I remember tying my first fly would have been my late teens. I want to say 18 or 19. Yeah. About 18 or 19. And, um, I, at first I tried just to do it my, myself, I, my fishing buddy at the time knew I wanted to get into fly fishing. And while he didn't fly fish, he did tie jigs. So he gave me this old, like a Walmart or some crazy old vice and a box of jig materials and a VHS tape on how to tie. And so I put that in at my parents' place and was, we didn't have a remote. So I was going back and forth to the (laughs) tape recorder. A lot lot different than YouTube. Closet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, YouTube was not there at the time. And then I ended up going with a friend to a fly tying night at one of the local clubs. And I think I tied my first Doc Spratly and it was a real eye opener and I just genuinely enjoyed it. Super cool. Yeah. Did you, I was going to ask, did you have a mentor? Like, did you have somebody that was there for you or was it just... In fly tying, no. Dave Puffer was my fishing mentor, but like I said, he didn't fly fish. But I still, I still give him all the credit because, yeah, that's right. Because for my 18th birthday, he bought me a regal uh, lookalike vice. I was waitress or not waitressing. I was busting tables at the Olive Garden, and he came in with this vice, and it was you know the old regal knockoff things. Mm-hmm. And that was my birthday gift when I turned, I think yeah, I turned 18. Wow. And, um, 18, 19, I don't know. It's all, it's a long time ago, but it was, it was when I really took it to the next level. But I think that's one of the reasons why my fly tying career, no fly tying journey has been so exciting is that there, it was just kind of an experience, um, that happened by reading books. I read a ton of books, bought every single book that Michael and Young had on tying classic salmon flies, because obviously I just thought they were the coolest things ever. Yeah. And that was really where it started. So books, I guess Michael Radenhick and um, Ron Alcott, <laughs> those guys would be my, they'd be my mentors. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Did you keep your first fly? Do you, do you still have it or did you fish it or? Mm, I think my first Atlantic salmon fly that I, tr- I'm sure I've got the Doc Spratly somewhere. Um, I just wouldn't even know that it's my first fly looking at it now. Cause it was pretty fishy. I've probably fished it and lost it at this point, but right um, I think I still have my first Atlantic salmon wannabe fly. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so now how often do you tie now and, and why, <sighs> and why do you tie? Well, um, I haven't been tying as much as I would like to, like so many of us, it's a seasons thing. I just don't have the time that I used to, but I was just in Canada, uh, back home at my cabin a few weeks ago and I got all the stuff that I was missing here. So I've got them all up in my room, ready to come down to my office where I'm speaking to you now. And I plan on getting right back into it very, very soon. Actually, I see that you're a member of Anchored Outdoors. And one of the upcoming tying nights that I am about to post on the site is me teaching members how to tie the sugar pop. So that's one of the reasons why I went home and raided all my tying materials and brought back all the sugar pop materials. Awesome. So my answer is hopefully soon. And why do I tie? It's very, very relaxing for me. That's not why I used to tie. I used to tie for the challenge, but now... It's my time to put on a movie, chill out, have a glass of wine, and really just slow down. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mentioned in my my last episode about the meditative qualities of it. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's a it's a big part of it for me for sure. Well, a lot of the guys and gals that you talk to now probably tie commercially or tie for profit, and I and I of course was I did a lot of that as well, and that did suck the life out of me for a while. And I think that was why I kind of put it down for a bit because I just didn't want to, it really was starting to weigh on me and feel like work, but now enough time has passed that it's, it's relaxing again. 
Cool. Yeah. Do you, do you listen to music when you tie? Uh, it depends. Sometimes music, sometimes uh, television, Netflix. It just depends on my mood and how ambitious I am at the time. Cool. You talk about tying commercially, um, which I could see having the ability to burn you out. I mean, it's like anything if you like doing it and you have to do it for X amount of hours, like how, you know, it might burn you out. Do you, do you think you have any um, fly tying like strengths or weaknesses that you might've like um, picked up from having to do that? Like that, those long hours of doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And just to your point about being burnt out, I think for me, when I was tying flies and it was for guiding, it was different because those were functional flies. I had a client showing up. They wanted 12, 24, 30 flies for when they came. But then it got to the point where people were buying a fly and I knew that they were buying it to frame or to put aside to say that it was a fly that I had tied. And that was what started to kill it for me because then I had to strive for perfection, perfection and not just sure. if you know something that was going to fish well. So that was definitely the downturn. That was the beginning of the end. Um, even like a charge more, every dollar that you charge more, every wrap has to be that much better. So that was kind of how it all started going downhill. Um, as far as strengths, yes, I've learned how to be efficient and how to not have any sort of bulk. Uh, the biggest strength though is learning how to start. I, I, I learned how to tie first by starting it with Atlantic salmon flies, which seems crazy. Yeah. But it really did set me up for just so much success with the rest of my time. You know, by the time that I was getting to hackles and all that fun stuff, the soft loop was just like second nature to use a soft loop um, yeah. because I had started doing it that way. Just jump right in the fire. Why not? Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> it, they're just so beautiful. And of course, Ken Sawada, you know, and at this time, See, at this time, this I was on the Thompson at the hilltop, and in the bathroom, there was this old Ken Sawada book on fly tying. I think it ended up, I think someone ended up ripping it off because it was worth quite a bit of money at the time. And it really changed my life. Looking at what those guys were doing over in Japan just knocked my socks off. Um, but yeah, it makes you a better tire, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, what do they say, 10,000 hours or something like that for any? To, to be an expert at something I, I can see. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious, I guess. I was talking with somebody the other day about how um, tying fly, I, I, I can't think of many other um, art mediums of art that are used in a utility in like a utilitarian fashion, like tying flies. So you like, you're making something creative, which could be like a one-off thing um, probably is for a lot of people. And you're using it for something that could be even catching dinner or something like that. Like I don't see, there's not a whole lot of that, in general, and especially now, um, yeah, could, can you think of anything else that would fall into that category? Um, see, the cool thing about flies, especially these salmon flies, is you, their decor. I mean, historically, that's what they were tied for, to go in these women's hats. Mm -hmm. And then, and I would have them as decor on me. And then I'd go fishing and be like, oh, just lost my wooly bugger. I guess I better tie on this Jock Scott. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, but as far as other things in life that are like that, uh, I don't know. I have to think on it. It's hard, right? I, could, I, could, I couldn't think of anything, you know, and, it, you know, we had a long conversation about it, but um, I'm going to keep asking people that and see what I learned. Yeah. Let my brain stew on that as we continue conversing okay. and I'll see what comes up. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, tying is kind of an intimidating hobby, um, you know, to jump into kind of like fly fishing is for people who haven't fly fished. There's a lot of misconceptions I had about it before I tried. And same with like casting a two-handed rod, you know, you have a until you try it, you know, none of those things are as hard as they seem without firsthand experience. Right. Um, and tying to me sounded like something super rigid and, um, specific and kind of tweed vesty, but the more people I talk to and, you know, the more I dig into it, the characters are vast, just like any art community, you know, and that's, that's how I've embraced it. Um, it's the experience the expressive side of the sport of fishing and kind of left brain versus right brain, you know, um, what's, what's a big misconception that you might be able to clear up about, you know, tying in general for someone who's interested in trying it for the first time. Um, that is intimidating. Sorry. And I know you just said that it's intimidating, but I think that's such a personal thing. Like for me, you know, Dave Puffer, I remember it so clearly we're in his old tackle room. Dave's got no teeth. 
And, you know, we're sitting there and going through all the jigs and he hands me over a shoebox with this just old, it's just overflowing with all this old material and this little rusty vice. And that wasn't very intimidating. It was super cool. I had this shoebox full of stuff to go home and sort through. And then, you know, there was no thread in it. So mom, do you have any sewing thread? Yeah, sure. You know, and I don't even think I had a bobbin. I think I was using my fingers at this point. So nothing, none of that was intimidating um, until I put on the VHS tape. And then I, I felt a little bit nervous, but honestly, it, that was, I was just experimenting at getting used to creating what I thought would catch fish. And because I knew that I could cut a piece of flash off of this dress here and maybe pick up that bird off the road that's dead over there and dive into this shoebox. to me, it was all just like arts and crafts on a budget. Um, and it, it was not intimidating. It was incredibly rewarding because I knew that even though it wasn't perfect, that it would still catch fish. And those flies did catch fish. The fish didn't care. Totally. Right. And it's not like fishing. Like sometimes you go out, maybe you're with a guide and you're not that good. You're not that great of a caster. You feel a little bit like well, you're, you're performing in front of somebody. Right. And it might be kind of embarrassing. Like at least with tying, like you're, you could just be in your in your room and nobody's going to see the crap that you do the first couple times or something like that. Right. Um, and yeah, and even those do catch fish. So, I mean, I think it's empowering too. And, um, you know, I was intimidated to start too. And once I did, I started with shad flies really like with like just, um, kind of basic nymphs on like 10 hooks and, um, catching a fish with one of those, like really kind of, yeah, gave me the confidence to try other stuff. And then, branching out into streamers and all those kind of things and seeing you yeah. the, the sugar pop like I told you you know help me help me kind of bridge into some other stuff um like but you're totally right it's it, you can hide behind it right yeah, you sure. and nobody sees you I I find fly casting in front of people incredibly intimidating to this be. day I will die I will die thinking it's intimidating um I just fall apart I'll be casting like a superstar and you go by me on the river and it's like oh my god yeah. do this right and then i rush it i pop it it's just a disaster yeah. but for fly tying it's you right no yeah. one sees you you're by yourself totally yeah the guy could be i could barely see the the person fishing like the run downstream for me and i'll still be like subconscious about it totally get it and it's this relationship when you're fishing your fly nobody has seen nobody can see your fly right mm-hmm. well you're the only person who knows if it's a total piece of crap that you're fishing and it's just you and that fly and you're both out looking for the same results. So it's just this very personal relationship, you and your, and your fly that really nobody else is privy to. And I find that very powerful. And for me, it's very, it's freeing. It's all part of it for me. For, for sure. It goes into my next question for you pretty well too. Do you feel, um, do you, does it feel better to catch a fish on your own fly or to see like a friend or a client catch one on your fly? Ah, uh, it's all the same to me. Um, I just like to see fish taking my flies. For sure. Okay, well, let's talk about intruders since that's why that's why I hit you up in the first place. Um, so I have a, a couple questions about intruders specifically that I want to start digging in with you. Okay, do you remember the first intruder, t- uh, the first intruder that you in- that you tied, and why? Like um, the first time you saw or heard about it. Mm-hmm. Now I am going to take this down to I'm going to take this up a level and tell you I've actually never tied a true intruder before. Okay. So the true intruder was designed by Ed Ward and that whole crew over there, um, Mm -hmm. Washington. And there is a very, believe it or not, specific pattern to a true intruder fly. Um, Actually, I hired Tyler Kushner. He's on my website. If you type in Tyler's name, he did write a whole article about the true intruder. Okay. Um, So I've always been very careful to make sure that I say intruder variation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely kind of a... A, a, a platform more than a pattern, right? And that's yeah, definitely, yeah. I'll definitely bridge into that. And so for me, at first glance, I mean, what do we notice about animals and people profile, right? And same with flies. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing I notice a profile. So Ed Ward has his intruder. First thing I noticed, like so many of us is the profile. And of course it made sense that there'd be a, I'm not going to say bulky, but a voluminous rear. And then another, um, I guess, is that the right word for a voluminous front? Sure. Voluminous? Voluminous. Is the right word for that? I yeah. think it's voluminous. Yeah. <laughs> but something that's got some sort of volume as it goes through the water. Sure. And then obviously, if you have no materials in the middle or very limited materials in the middle, as it 
dances through the current, it's it's really pulsating and flowing and creating movement as different currents, you know, grab it and swing it through the flow. And so for me, that that was really all that I saw was the two parts of you know, the two, basically two balls, two dubbing balls with some sort of long material on them with virtually nothing in the middle so that they could undulate and flow as they went through the current. It's, it's funny that you said you've never tied like a traditional one. I probably haven't either, really. I mean, they're all my little variation on, on what Edward and, and Jerry French and, um, they created up, I think in Alaska actually is where they did it. Um, but I think they're all Pacific Northwest dudes, right? What do you think are the pros and cons on tying them on shanks versus tubes? Well, I tied shanks for years and um, because because of the Atlantic salmon thing, I had these enormous three, four inch long shanks that were extremely expensive, by the way. And they were all blind eye, you know, I was buying the real traditional partridge and um, it's been a long time, but yeah, very expensive hooks. And I would tie gut onto them, but it was when I got my first two-handed rod that I started to run into problems. And so this was before switch rods and all that fun stuff. So my first, I'm going to call it a two-handed rod, but some people will call them spay rods, was 15 feet long and I'm five foot five. And so I'd be out on the river, try on the Thompson, trying to land this fish. And I could see that three or four-aught hook ripping the auxiliary off of my fish. And that didn't sit well with me, obviously, in a catch and release fishery. So from there, I started cutting off the back of these extremely expensive hooks and tying on, um, at the time it wasn't wire, but I was using like amnesia. I don't know if you know, sure. amnesia yeah. running line yeah. and kind of like a, you big, know, like a thick mono, right? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the guys were using power pro. I didn't like the power pro because I felt like it got limp and, um, I eventually ended up getting a, like a swim tank. And so when I, I could see that even, even though people would say, oh, well the power pro softens, but it stretches out or it, it, um, you know, fixes itself and and sits straight as it flows through the current. But I could see clearly in my swim tank that it didn't matter how heavy the flow was, that power pro did not straighten out. It still sagged. And I didn't like that. So I was using um, a running line or a heavy mono, like you said, and then eventually like a toothy critter wire. And then that helped me to be able to switch out my hook on and off. But not only did it do that, it allowed there to be bend in the hook. So even though, so I'm just thinking leverage here, right? So while I'm, I know people can't see me, but while I'm trying to land this fish, then the fish is getting kind of pulled up into the shallows. I can see that the three inches of the hook shank might be, you know, tight to my leader, but that the two inch um, wire or running line, this the stinger hook is bent at a 90 degree angle so that it's more accommodating to the fish's mouth. And so now I'm on to something, right? I can feel good about what I'm doing here. These flies work. I don't feel great about cutting my hooks up, but whatever. And I'm not hurting the, I'm, that's not true. I'm hurting the fish, but I'm not, I'm not unnecessarily ripping the fish's mouth apart. From there, I started to hear rumblings about tube flies. Again, this is kind of all happening on the Thompson river back in the hilltop days and I'm hearing about tube flies, but no one's really fishing them. And um, some of the guys had been talking about WD-40 straws. And while I didn't have WD-40 straws, I did have toothpicks. I mean, sorry, um, Q-tips. So I was cutting off my Q-tips. Ends up, they get brittle, by the way, and they break off on the rocks. But when, when I started... Say, ex- when you sorry, when you say WD-40 straws, you're talking about the, the red spray nozzle. Yeah, yeah, the spray straws. And they're pretty good, actually. I bet, yeah. And so that was how my tube fly transition started was when I could get some straws. And then obviously with, with Q-tips started tying these tube flies and then all of the advantages started to surface, right? Now, all of a sudden I'm fighting my fish and not only is the fly or, you know, do I have that little stinger loop and, and I've stopped tearing the fish's mouth apart, but now that fly is riding up my leader three feet up high. It's, it's out of the way entirely. Then I'm going, you know, I start fishing other rivers, the Thompson closes, the Chilliwack River opens. Maybe I want to switch out a different hook size. Um, and same with like salmon. I wanted, I didn't want to fish the same size hook for sure. Chinook salmon as I did for steelhead, but I could use the same fly and just switch out the hook size. So all of that. And then there are, I've got about 10 different advantages to fishing tube flies, which we can talk about later, but I've very quickly learned that tubes, um, just simply from a cost standpoint, were going to be a better choice for me. 
Interesting. Yeah. The cost part is, is, is swaying me. I've been a little bit scared to jump over into that, into that part of it. Um, I like tying on shanks and I'm kind of just starting to feel comfortable rigging, rigging them that way and everything like that. Um, but tube seems super cool. I, I think I've seen you talk about stacking them too, as far as another way. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah. In I was in, have online. <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. I was in Iceland and I couldn't get this fish and my guide at the time was like, well, slide on on another was fishing a francis dun 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 francis anyone who knows what that is just like threw up in their mouth a little bit right now but i love the francis and so i slid on a second francis and caught that fish and that sort of set me off on this whole new journey so now and i guess we can talk about advantages now that we've kind of opened that can now not only can i switch out the hook size depending on species because remember this is at a time when i was traveling everywhere fishing. And I never really knew what to pack. I didn't have a lot of money, partly because I was traveling everywhere to go fishing. Mm -hmm. So I was able to tie a bunch of very cheap tubes. I mean, it cost, they cost pennies, tie a bunch of these tubes, have them in a Ziploc bag in my waders, go anywhere around the world. I would always have little ones and large ones tied up. And what I was tying was the, the, um, the, what we were talking about earlier about the two different sections of, of um, bulk, if you will, mm-hmm. I was, t- I'm just going to call them balls. I always am sensitive and careful about what I say on podcasts, but the, the two different, know, the stations, right? The station. Yes. So two different stations. So I would tie a small station and a, and a large station, one that could, if they were stacked together, go in the back and one that could go in the front. But that meant that if the water was low and clear, I just fish a single rear station. If the water was murky, I fish a single front station. And if I needed something obnoxious, or even if I was fishing for pike in Alaska, I could stack the two together and be set. So now not only can I switch out colors, so mix and match colors, mix and match size, mix a profile, mix and match hook size, get a doll hook, switch it out. I like the way that the hook sits. I think that it's better on the fish and I just think it's a better presentation. Um, But I could also slide on a tungsten tube if I wanted to add weight or a tungsten bead, excuse me. And I could slide that in the front, in the back. I could slide it wherever I needed it, depending Mm -hmm. if I was stripping or swinging and what action I wanted. So you can't do that with with a shank. As much as I still like to see a Lady Caroline tied on a, a shank, from a fishy stance, a, a Ziploc full of tubes, nothing beats it. Yeah, you're making a good case. Yeah, what do you, what do you like most about that platform? I mean, you're talking about the two different stations. It's so versatile. Like, is there something is something that you like specifically about it? Is there something that you tie like um, to geek out, like, and do something signature your own way, or or anything like that? Yeah, I don't know if anything's um, my own way. My my pretty typical fly, like if you were to see my my fly box, would be a thing of so dubbing, and we can dork out on materials later. I love talking fly tying <laughs> materials, so it would be some dubbing, and then a the next you know layer would be a longer material, and then I'd have some sort of a collar, and then I'm a real sucker for cheeks, so I put jungle cock on all my flies. Okay. Um, I've got opinions on that as well. Like I said, we could talk about fly tying material later, but yeah, so that's pretty much how they all look in mini versions. Sometimes I'll put a, a wing on hair wing, feather wing, just depends what I've got kicking around. Um, sometimes I don't, I'm a real fan of putting stuff on a fly and then ripping it out later. So like I'll tie a fly a little bit too long, knowing that I can shorten it or I'll put in a little too much flash knowing I can cut it out or I'll put on a wing knowing I can rip it out. So mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Uh, you want to geek out on materials. You need to talk to Jonathan Farmer, who seems to be oh, like totally. the I got on who, really well with him. Yeah. yeah. Can find, like, he finds like anything you can think of, like that nobody else can find. Yeah. Um, to me, to me, the, the, the intruder has some parallels to the Clouser just because of how versatile and like um, real kind of simple it is when you, when you uh, boil it down and, you know, how much you could customize it yourself and that's what that's what my next episode is going to be about so i'm kind of keeping on that trend i guess i kind of already covered my next question i was going to ask you what you like to, uh, as far as rigging method goes but it's I, I guess you you seem to like a tube variation as far as rigging this kind of fly right yeah i like to tie a tube and have a loop 
I mean, obviously you need a loop mm-hmm. when you're fishing a tube fly. Oh, not necessarily. Some people will just do like a standard clinch or something to their hook and then slide their tube down. I still feel like that sets the hook too far in, which can result in short strikes. Now, obviously the last thing I want to do is be gut hooking or, you know, Mm. hooking fish in the tongue. So I like to have my hook set back a little bit. And I do that just by creating a, a, like a loop knot. So I just double my line over, do a, I think it's just a triple surgeons. I have to have a look, but um, and then just slide my seats it in there for you. So it's like, you can control the, the length. Yeah. Yeah. And look, one of the things that really put me off of tube flies initially, well, not initially, but when the industry accepted it and they were selling them in stores, you would have to also have surgical tubing mm-hmm. at the time. And I was way too cold out there to be fumbling, trying to put on a piece of surgical tubing. And, um, and so I didn't like that, but they've since they've, they've fixed that with flies. Now they've got, you know, one piece uh, plastic Small, flies that that smaller than the other. It's like tapers off and stuff. Yeah, they they taper out. And then even just back in the day, I would just jam it down as far as I could on the mm-hmm. knot until the knot eventually just wore it into a mushroom. Uh, do you think that there's uh, like a most difficult part of tying, like an intruder style fly? Is there some like a technique that people should um, be proficient at if they want to tie them well? Yeah. I think the most difficult part is not adding too much material, too much unnecessary material. Um, you know, getting real fancy with, I I get it. It's fun to show your fly to a buddy and have them pull all the layers back and be like, Oh, who knew that there was, I don't know, Turkey or like porcupine quill in here, all these crazy fun things, but they're not necessary. They don't need to be there and they do cause unnecessary weight. And that same goes with you know, when, like I mentioned, when these hit the store shelves, it was a totally different world. And a lot of people were selling or stores were selling the the plastic discs mm-hmm. um, that weren't necessarily hollowed out. And so you'd go to, in theory, they sound great. Oh, they push the water. They keep your fly materials splayed out. Mm-hmm. But when you actually go to try to set your anchor with your cast, it sticks to the water. And then of course, when you've got this crazy stick, when it lets go, um, yeah, the acceleration, you get all the slack and it throws off your whole cast. For sure. Well, I mean, I hope, I hope that, um, people are intimidated by the pattern. It's something that's super open, um, to tie on and try your own stuff on. Um, I kind of, it was kind of seemed difficult and like, there's no way I could try that when I first tried it a couple years ago. Why, um, why, what was intimidating about it to you? It might've been just like watch, watching Skagit Master one and seeing Edward and his crew tie it. And it just seemed like way, way, way crazier than tying, like I said, a shad nymph, you know, like. Right. And I just. Is that because it's more 360, you know, with things like even the clouser, you know, anything where you're stacking a piece of hair on or feathers onto and, and just tying it on in a, in a bunch. Was it because it was, it brought in the, the 360 side of things where you were wrapping entirely around the circumference or the diameter of the hook. I think it was more that like coupled with like this, this, I guess the stack of materials where they're there, you know, there's like, um, they're twisting up feathers on top of dubbing with other stuff, you know, like, and making the composite loop full, full. It just seemed, it seemed like they're, my hands can't do that. I don't know. You know, right. But there's yeah. so many ways to do those in different steps, right? Sure. Like I know I don't would never put I don't put Rhea in a loop and wrap. I understand the advantages, but I just don't have patience for it. I would so much rather I take my Rhea and we can talk about Rhea versus ostrich and all that mm-hmm. stuff later. But I literally take a stack, I stick it on top like a hair wing, I take my thumb, wiggle, 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 let it splay out, do my wraps, rock and no, roll. No, no spin. No, no I just don't have time. Way. For it. That, and honestly, I've gotten so lazy that I'm even almost stopping making dubbing loops for my dubbing. I'm, I'm like in Enrico Puglisi brushes. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Let's go for it. <laughs> well, I kind of like it now. Like I kind of like um, seeing what I can do as far as what I can put in a loop and spin it up now. It's fun. I like it now. It's not intimidating at all. And that's what's cool about not just this pattern, but tying in general. You can do it any way you want and you can do it to fit your style um, as quick or as, take as long as you want, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I hope people tie some up and um, you know give it a shot. Um, I, so to closing out, I have a couple kind of uh, random questions for you. Um, let's see. Um, 
I just got a puppy. Um, I got a black lab. I was wondering if I could use her shed hair as custom dubbing. Yeah, for sure. Um, body hair, body fur is always a little bit harder to work with than tail fur with most animals. And it's just because it's softer. So you will find that it won't hold its splay quite as well as perhaps her tail might. Well, I thought you were going to make fun of me for asking, but no, no, I, not at I, all. I re- but I really can. And there's tons of it. Let me tell you, I don't know if you've had a lab before, but there's tons, there's tons of hair, tons of hair in my house. No, I think use, I used to use my own when I was blonde. I always used to cut my own hair and put it in flies. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Um, okay. And I told, so I told you, um, Earlier, before our interview in this episode, um, I talk about some of my scariest intruders. Do you? Could you tell me what your scariest intruders are? Define scariest, like I, ugliest tide, <laughs> or scariest to the fish. I'm not even talking about flies anymore. I'm talking about real life intruders. Oh wow, now, intruders! Now, now let me. I'll tell you mine just to, just to break the ice here because okay, what, what I it. included, what one of them was. Um, have you seen Communion? with Mm-mm. christopher walken it was like an alien movie in the oh. early 90s no but i love him give it a shot it's not it probably isn't as scary as it is now as it was for me when i was 13 or whatever um but yeah the aliens of that one i picture as as super terrifying and there were some of the more terrifying intruders that i would have would have told you if you asked me that question was that the scariest intruder you've had in your life as a movie? Not in, not in my whole life, <laughs> but as a kid, that was just one of them, you know? I mean, growing up, obviously, that idea changes a little bit, you know, as far as what you're scared of or what, it, what an intruder might be. Well, to me, unfortunately, I'm going to show my... Um my passion for YouTube here. Have you ever seen that, hide your kids, hide your wife? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, that parody always comes to my mind when I hear about intruders nowadays is that hilarious YouTube sure. okay. parody of the guy talking about the intruder who's broken into his house, but, mm-hmm. um, real life intruders, <clears throat> it'd have to be an animal. I'm sure of some sort. I was going to, I was going to, I was going to guess bears or something because you're up in BC, right? Mm-hmm. For, for half your time. Well, hang on. Actually the big, I will tell you right now, I am currently actually, that is such a timely question. That is, this is good. Um, I have had a real problem here in Australia, which is where I am right now with grass leeches. Oh, the leech. And so, and, and it sounds funny, right? Like I moved here and I thought, oh yeah, cool. I got my first grass leech years ago and thought, oh, that's interesting. There's leeches in the grass. Cool. I'll just wear boots. And I never in a million years thought that our new place, which is where I am now, was going to be like the mecca of grass leeches. I mean, I took my daughter, I took my daughter down to go check out the game cams the other day. It was all of a one minute walk. And between the two of us, we had five on us. So yesterday was this epic storm. It was madness. And there are leeches. I am not kidding. Crawling up our house. I've got them on video. Beside my, like my husband last night was cooking dinner. He goes, where's the salt? I said, in my office, don't ask. I'm looking right now at a pile of melted salt and leeches that we're trying to get in my office. Um, They are just, I can't even walk. There was one on the patio yesterday. I cannot walk through my yard ever, even with shoes on without getting a leech on me. So definitely intruders are these, which is funny because in fly fishing, we have leeches, but grass leeches are the intruder of the century. Me. Yeah. Wow. But how much blood can a leech consume? Well, there's one way to find out. That's They're real. everywhere. They just end up all, oh, all over your body. <laughs> it's, re- it's, it's real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So speaking of Australia, you sp- so you split half your time there and in Vancouver, Vancouver Island, BC, right? Uh, Smithers, BC. Okay. Um, th- so both of those areas, I mean, I'm not, not sure where you are in Australia. Um, but the, the general areas um, are full of like paranormal and weird stuff. Caddy, the Cadbursaurus. Um, I don't know if you're familiar in uh, Cadbury Bay in Victoria. No, like what lo- is that? Loch Ness Monster. A Loch Ness Monster. Type, type okay. of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, lots of Bigfoot stuff, uh, UFO stuff. Um, you got spooky castles and haunted places like uh, Roger's Chocolates. You oh, you have to send. I love this okay. stuff. You're going to have to send that over to me. You haven't, heard, you haven't read about any of that stuff? I don't okay. typically look up ghost stuff, but I did drive by a ghost or someplace the other day. It's like an old penitentiary that said ghost tours, but yeah, I love that stuff. As far as UFOs, I mean, it, 
aliens exist. So that's not even a topic for, that's like not even a surprise, but well, um, Bigfoot. Yeah. I'll give Bigfoot a go too, actually. I was going to ask you, I mean, you know, Australia has a bunch of their own too, usually with some funnier names than, um, than most places. Um, like well, they also say that there are Panthers here. Um, I think it's Panthers that they say, oh, yeah? but, but I can tell you from experience, we were, this would have been six years ago. We were on this river that is not very busy kind of backwards my husband's got nightmare stories about some of the people he's run into it's very deliverance sort of feel and i had colby my dog with me who had huge like wolf size feet and all of a sudden his hackles went up and he was he's really i lost colby in february so i excuse my past present tenses but colby was a bear and cougar dog he could smell them from a mile away and with his hackles i saw him go up and i didn't see that often in australia obviously, because there's not that much stuff going on out here. Anyway, um, we, we got on these tracks and they're clearly cat tracks. There were no claws that had been extended out. You know, cats have a different print and they were bigger than Colby's. And I knew right away it was a cat. We followed them and it brought me and Colby and eventually my husband to a disemboweled cow or like the intestine and stuff of wow. a cow. So if, if that, and there's sightings and everyone calls people crazy, because they're, they're not they're, like on record, there's no big cats in Australia at all. Or well, there's rumor. Other people have seen them and gotten trail cam footage or photos. But of course, it's just like the guy who sees Bigfoot. You know, everyone's poo poos and you're crazy. Um, but I was there and saw what I saw, and have no doubt that there's a panther or a big cat of some sort here somewhere. They say that it was um, it escaped from a zoo or something like that. Mm. But but um, my point is, I mean. If, if so many people who live here haven't seen that, and so many people in British Columbia haven't even seen a wolverine, and wolverines are everywhere, sure. I wouldn't be so quick to say that things like Bigfoot don't exist. You can judge me all you want. But for me, I've seen some crazy things, and I've heard some crazy things, and I just wouldn't put it past there being a Bigfoot. That's all I'm saying. Well, you say you don't read about this stuff, but I do. I read, I read about it. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Send over any links that are um, in Australia that could... That could spice things up. Definitely send them over. You got uh, you got the bunyip. Have you ever heard of that one? No. Okay, the, but there's the bunyip. Uh, real quick, it says, um, I was reading about it before I talked to you. Almost entirely aquatic, inhabiting lakes, swamps, lagoons, creeks. Um, it said, um, difficulty describing its... Uh, aboriginals had uh, difficulty describing it. It's most unusual form. It's said to be an enormous starfish. Oh my goodness. And then you have a, a supposed race of mer people in the Murray River. There's a whole bunch of stuff about the Murray River. Are they uh, really little? I don't know. I, I didn't see pictures of them. Well, it's interesting. I was in the Sydney Museum not that long ago. They've got a really interesting natural history museum. Hmm. And they had... Um, you know, obviously skeletal remains of, of one of the, it's this, and it's an Australian museum. So everything that is in there is from Australia. And Mm -hmm. there was a a small person, species, the right family. Like, I don't even know what to call them, but there was a small person Mm -hmm. um, that they did find like that sort of body structure in Australia. So who knows? Mm -hmm. I'll have to send you some, I'll have to send you some links. Um, Yeah. You mentioned you you believe in, life on other plants or aliens or whatever. Do you have any stories? Nope, not a one. No, just one for my dad. I don't know if that counts. Everyone's got a story from somebody that they love, but my dad, who is all there upstairs, will be the first person to tell you that he saw a spaceship and was and wasn't the first wasn't the only person. Everyone was calling into the radio about it. Yeah. And then the next day it was just deleted. Like it never happened. Where was this? In Richmond, in Richmond, British Columbia, which of course there's an airport there. So I don't know if that, if that proves this story or makes it less believable because it's an airport, but um, yeah, I don't know, but I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't see how there can't be aliens yeah, somewhere. I just don't a, think it's like the movies do it, but. Right. I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, that's something that I read a lot about too. My, my opinions have changed on it a ton over the, uh, you know, last 20 years or so. Um, but right now, I don't know how you couldn't be interested in the topic. It's all over the place. And, um, you know, you can read about it to the end of the world. I mean, if you want to go down that rabbit hole and there's 
But it's funny how fast you get judged for it. I mean, I made the mistake of bringing this up at family dinner when I was in Canada a few weeks ago. And yeah, I mean, I had no idea. My husband thinks I'm crazy. Mom thinks I'm crazy, but dad and I were on the same page. Good. I don't think you're crazy. Well, you wouldn't, but (laughs) maybe someone else listening. Well, you know, April, thank you so much again uh, for letting me steal your time today. Um, I just wanted to tell you that, you know, uh, as a father, um, the way you involve your daughter in your outdoor pursuits is super inspiring. So thank you for sharing that stuff uh, with the world on social media. Uh, Thank you for everything that you do and all the knowledge that you're passing on um, to the global the global community of people that enjoy tie and flies, hunting, fishing, foraging, everything in between. Um, so best of luck to you and your family this year. And I hope to, um, to speak with you again sometime. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I could talk to April for hours and she said she would come back for another chat in the future. So I'm going to hold her to that and look forward to it. Again, if you haven't checked out Anchored Outdoors, there's a link in the show notes. You can also find her social media links in the show notes, as well as a video of her tying the sugar pop. I think it makes perfect sense that classic steelhead flies and intruders are so cool. I also think it makes sense that the river unicorn we call the steelhead live in paranormal hotspots, as they're elusive creatures that we don't know a whole lot about when they aren't in our rivers. They live in streams that flow in Northern California and the Pacific Northwest, which are Bigfoot infested. In Alaska, which has all kinds of weird stuff, like the underground pyramid I mentioned to Jonathan Farmer on the last episode, there's stories of ghost ships and a creepy submarine graveyard in Kamchatka, and many more speculative lines I can draw in my brain. I'll be fascinated by steelhead and the flies they eat and scary intruders for the rest of my life. But let's face it, in reality, we're the real intruders. Ripping fish out of their world for a quick selfie or to eat them like an actual real-life monster. Again, check out the show notes for relevant links from today's program, tie an intruder, and always choose love over fear. As I sign off today, I'll leave you with some information on organizations that I feel are playing crucial roles in things I care about. Cast Hope is a nonprofit organization positively impacting kids and their mentors in California and Western Nevada through free fly fishing and outdoor experiences. Through their program, clients build mentoring relationships, fly fishing skills, outdoor knowledge, sustainable practices, and personal values. Cast Hope's gift of the outdoors empowers each mentoring pair to grow closer as they participate in healthy hobbies together. Check them out at casthope.org and whichever social network you like to use. Wild Steelheaders United was established to educate and mobilize the numerous wild steelhead advocates. It's a place where anglers can become more informed about wild steelhead biology and ecology, keep abreast of policy issues, and learn about Trout Unlimited's conservation work. As demonstrated by history, it is certainly possible to rally conservation-minded steelhead anglers to weigh in on a specific management decision that threatens to eliminate something they value. But there is no precedent for advancing a proactive, sustainable policy agenda at scale through purely volunteer efforts. Chances of conservation success are greatest if we have the backing of as many individuals as possible across all the Pacific states. This is why Wild Steelheaders United is critical. Visit wildsteelheaders.org for more info. This episode of The Secret Society of Fly Tires is brought to you by our good friends at Joanne Fabric. Don't be a dumb idiot and buy your fabrics and yarns and craft fur and chenille from the fly-by-night snake oil salesman Michael. Michael's is full of charlatans and grifters, I bet. Their products repel fish, while the high-quality products and fabrics and trinkets you get at Joanne Fabrics are guaranteed to get you some nice wet fish. Visit Joanne Fabric today for all of your fly-tying needs. You can even cut out the middleman and just buy the fish from Joanne if you want. Some of the locations and sell fish, I guess. Please note that this is not a real advertisement and the company, brand, entity, or product mentioned in the preceding ad in no way endorses, agrees with, or knows about this podcast.